1: it's not today's price. Heyo, welcome back to the Run the Numbers podcast. CJ Gustafson here, and what we're about to get into is a conversation I had with my buddy Rohit Devate, and he's been heading up corporate finance and FP&A at Gusto for. Over six years now. And what's incredible is that he's seen the company more than 10x in both revenue and headcount in that time. And so he is very much the man with the plan, more specifically, the operating plan. And so we dug into what he looks for when the company sets out to create a new operating plan and how they put guardrails around headcount planning. Headcount planning is something that I'm pretty passionate about uh, as a CFO because. At most tech companies, 70 to 80% of your costs walk on two legs. So if you're trying to strip out the outliers of where performance may end up, the first thing to do is to try to get your head count right. And he had some cool takes on ways to create budget envelopes for people and make them feel like they have freedom to hire who they want, but also make sure that things don't get out of whack. And I wanted to riff really quick on one of my favorite metrics. So I was searching for mailbag questions and Nolan Church of the HR Heretics podcast, shout out Nolan and Kelly, he threw one my way. He said, CJ, how does ARR or revenue per employee scale over time as a company grows? And I've previously called this the GOAT, greatest of all time of SaaS metrics. It's the Tom Brady of SaaS metrics, if you will. And... Why I love this so much is it drills down to the core economics of any company. You really can't hide from it. And you see it all the time where you'll have a company that's doing like 10 million in revenue. They have 50 employees and they're super pumped about the traction they're seeing. So they go out and they raise another round and they go on this hiring spree to double down on go to market resources specifically, or they just, you know, blow it out in every category and are hiring, you know, 17 people to do payroll. But then you look at them 12 months later, you catch back up with them and they're stuck at like 14 or 15 million in total revenue. And now they have 130 employees. And so when you take your eye off the ball, when it comes to revenue per employee, you end up with this proliferation of supporting functional heads all over the business that get hired. And revenue per employee, it's really the most honest metric in the world. And It's okay to accept some plateaus or even a couple of dips along the way. There will be noise depending on how the economy is doing and how fast it takes for you to close new deals as you add people. But you don't want to be stuck in this trough for a prolonged period of time. It carries a lot of signal. And- the signal is operational leverage. So are we able to do more with less? Are we able to get more out of each incremental dollar that we're putting into the business? And so OpenView would put out this table in their operational benchmarks that they came out with for, for this year. And it looked at what good versus great was for each ARR band. So if you're in the 2 and a half to $10 million range, you want to have minimally 100 k in revenue per employee great would be over 125k. Once you progress up to that 10 to 20 million ARR range, you want to have 115,000 or more per employee and now you're starting to look at great as 150 or more. And then you keep going up to, you know, 20 to 50, so you should have 150 minimally and then 180 to 200 looks great. And then if you're preparing for what we call scale or IPO, you want to have at least 250K in my opinion. I think 200 is a little bit low, but at least 250K per employee, 300K or more in most recent years is what looks best. And just to use some real life examples here. So Dropbox, they are doing almost 800,000 per employee, which is wild. Adobe, 635 million per employee. Shopify, 500,000 per employee. And I'd put a tweet out a while ago. It blew my mind when I looked at it. I know their stock price is completely a dumpster fire right now, but Expensify is doing pretty much 1.2 million per employee, which is nuts. Maybe they do have a bunch of contractors that are wrapped in there, but but I couldn't really tell. And that is just an efficient engine. While their growth has kind of stagnated in the last few years, they're still showing that they don't need a ton of people. To get it done. So ARR or revenue per employee, it's it's one of my favorite metrics of all time. And if I was thrown into a data room, other than net dollar retention, this would be the first thing I'd look at. So enjoy my conversation with Rohit Devate, and good luck closing out Q4. Get those deals in. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm here with the man, the myth, the legend, Gusto Rohit Devate. Nice to see you, my friend. Thank you, CJ. Nice to be here. Two finance dorks whose houses both run on Miss Rachel. So I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there who have seen more Miss Rachel than they care to admit.
0: Definitely Miss Rachel, Baby Shark. We got we got the whole character list. It was funny.
1: My, uh, my Spotify wrapped came out yesterday <laughs> and <laughs> my number one song was Lil Wayne and Benny the Butcher, Big Dog. It's a banger. <laughs> My number two song, though, was Wheels on the Bus by Rafi. So you can tell what like phase yeah. of life we're in by, by what the music says. But uh, all right, let's get into it here. So you've been at Gusto in a corporate finance role leading up a department for a while. Can you just speak in ranges? Generally, how big was Gusto when, when you started out there and how big is it now?
0: Yeah, it's a lot of scale. I've been here for almost six years now. And when I started, we were right about 450 people. We just passed about 2,500 recently. And when I started revenue wise, we were right around $50 million. And we just announced in June publicly that we passed 500 million in revenue. So, seeing a lot of scale and really excited to be here.
1: Damn. I don't like to do public math, but I think that's a 10X. All right. So, you've been there six years. I mean, I got to be honest, most finance leaders only last two years before they make the jump. What what keeps you around and still, you know, digging in the trenches each day?
0: I think it's like the mission and the people and the work that I do. So from the mission perspective, you know, we serve small businesses. Gus is primarily serving small businesses and starting a business and enduring as a business is really hard. You know, it's really for me, it's like, how can we help the small business really prosper? So that I think is great. And it also helps that, you know, every year there's a new challenge that comes up as part of a growing business. So I love the people I work with. I love, you know the The work that I do, so that really keeps me excited, and yeah, I, I'm so glad to be here for the last six years.
1: I love how you hit on Rohit, the small business piece because a lot of companies just think in this enterprise or bust mode, but there are a lot. I mean, there's a much larger long tail of of small businesses out there to serve, and you can build a killer business model specifically by fulfilling those needs.
0: Oh yeah, totally. There's over six million small business in the U.S. So there's so many people that are employed by small businesses. So when we think about like employers, we mainly think about, you know, big, big employers, but so many small businesses, your mom and pop shops, you know, restaurants, law offices, design offices, contractors, everything. America, you know, just really just runs on small businesses and it's really important to serve them well.
1: I always laugh when companies say, hey, we serve 70% of the Fortune 500. It's like, yeah, but bro, <laughs> there, that, there's literally only 500 yeah. of them. I'm like, that's great, but what do you do after that? Like, there aren't many companies that are maybe like a Palantir or something. I don't know how many customers yeah. they have, but there aren't many like massive enduring companies that only serve like, you know, 70 companies. Yeah, that's right. I know you serve small businesses, but by all standards, Gusto is getting pretty big. Would you say it's harder to get things done when a company grows to this size? I don't think so. I
0: think it really depends on like how you want to move forward with it. I'll maybe I go a little bit micro example of like how I like to do things and, and finance how we do things. It's like, you know, we don't like to take decisions past Friday or make decisions by committee. Like that's one main rule. It's like, how can we move faster? And whenever we look at decisions, we look at the risk curve, right? It's like, hey, you know, there might be a decision where I might have, or this is a very important decision where I might need to know you know 80 to 90% of the information before I make a decision but a lot of times you know I try to follow the 80 20 rule it's like okay I know most of the things I need to know and we just need to make a call and if I only know 50% of the things and it's not going to be as consequential you make the call i think that's probably the most important thing is like making calls and i think in larger businesses you could get bogged down where you have a lot more people to deal with you might have a lot more procedures but even in those like if you just start making calls and moving faster like you'll actually feel like you'll actually see other people move faster with you so i think it's just on you to like really move things forward
1: i just want to stand this for a sec cuz i love how you said it's the speed of decision making because a lot of bigger companies have reputations where decisions yeah. take forever to make and you got to go through you know 50 different layers you know just to get a new printer in the office or something but I think what separates the really good cultures is the autonomy for executives to make decisions with, like you said, eighty percent of the information they wish they had. Yeah. Because if you wait till you have a hundred, first of all, you probably never will have a hundred, but your
0: competitors are probably going to catch you from behind. Yeah, that's totally right. Like I'm privileged to be in finance, where like sometimes you get to put in these procedures, right? Like some rules around the company, whether they be for like how do you do headcount planning, how do you do budgeting, like what can I, you spend money on. And in any step we take, like every year we go back and we look at it, like any rules that we had from previous, we're like, you know, is that really needed? Like, do we really need that? Can we just take that away? So like, I really much like subscribe to the notion that like any rule you want to put in, you put an expiration date on it and you always reevaluate something over and over again, because that leads to like, the company changes dramatically, right? Like our company or any company that has had the success is not the same company it was six years ago, as it's going to be today. So you always have to think about what is appropriate for you now, what is going to be appropriate for you in the future, and really think about that versus really be bogged down by, well, we always did it this way. And now we have these new rules. So we're going to have to follow all of these new things. You, you want to get away from that and just really move to like fast, quick decision-making, in my opinion.
1: It makes me think of like almost taking a minimalist approach to it. And most companies, you see them just stacking layers of decisions Mm -hmm. that need to be made. But I think if I hear you right, you're saying you go back and say, hey, do we still have to do it this way? Can we trim some fat here and make things go faster? So that's pretty cool.
0: Really coming back to the first principles, like what are we trying to achieve? Let's do it. Let's think about it from that perspective. So to drill into
1: the finance department and kind of where it started and where it is now, can you walk me through how it's changed over the years? I mean, are roles becoming more specific? I'm guessing you've hired quite a few more people yeah. in the last six years in the finance team.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, I think that's quite natural for, you know, there to be specializations as you grow. But from a structure perspective, it hasn't really changed too much. And, you know, for, for us, and I think I've seen this across a lot of like newer companies where there's a lot more finance people that go much deeper into the business than in the past. So we try to go really deep into the business where we're not just kind of keeping score as finance, but really trying to move the business forward. So from a ratio perspective, if I would give you numbers. You know, we try to be somewhere in between 150 to 200, whereas traditional companies, uh, you might see like, Three hundred to four hundred people for every one finance person. So I think it, it really helps like to go deep because you're really embedded in the business, so you can make these decisions much faster. You can help the business move faster. And I think I might like this is a common thing that you know finance people say. It's like, well, I don't build a product and I don't sell the product. All I get to do is like help other people do those things better. And if you can understand. What they're doing and the business much much deeper than just saying like oh you spent this much and you're over by here and headcount is up or down like you can you can add a lot more value when you know what their business is. I like what you said
1: about keeping score too because if you're just in the back room keeping score, you're probably missing the actual game that's going on. And in order for people to play better, whether you're building the product or selling the product, you have to be pretty intimately aware of what the company is trying to achieve. Like my favorite department to actually talk to is the product department, which yeah. most people would say, oh, CJ, you're a finance person. Why are you so eager to talk to the product department? A, I think it's just cool that they're building shit that I have no idea how to, how to build and, and design. Yeah. But also like, I think the core of any company's monetization model comes back to whatever that product is.
0: Yeah, definitely. I've, I've done finance like, you know, I'm in corporate finance now. And that's also a very privileged position where I get to see like everything everything that's going on in the business. I get to work on the board decks where I get to go very high level, but I also see a lot of the quarterly business reviews where I get to go really deep on a particular subject. And in the past I've worked on like, worked with specifically with like marketing teams, product teams, et cetera. And, and I think like, I just love that model in finance where you have the ability to really go deep and understand the business and then really help out the business by, you know, actually having opinions of like, Hey, maybe we should change the pricing this way. Okay. We're, you know we're selling x y and z but have we considered what the gross margin or contribution margin of this is when you understand the product those are the, i think the values or the the additions that you can add i ask this out of a
1: place of, of empathy I haven't been there before where finance teams change and responsibilities also change are there ever hard conversations you have to have about giving up your legos and like hey i used to do investor relations yeah. fpna and treasury but now you know i can't do all three of those anymore
0: yeah, I, I don't think it's ever like a hard conversations. Like I think about it more like a tour of duty. And that's a concept we've had on our mm. team where people do different things and, and then you're going to move on and do something else. Like we've had people on the finance team that used to support, let's say marketing that went on to become PMMs. we had people supporting EPD that went on to become chief of staff for the engineering department. And I actually have a person on my team right now who I brought on for uh, financial systems to manage the financial system. And that person is now transitioning into a finance role. So I don't think it's a lot about like, you know, you have to do things forever. Like you evolve, as long as you're learning and growing, I think you can, you're, you're very much allowed to like do different things and you should be doing different things. Tours
1: a duty is a great way to put it because it puts a less permanent spin on mm-hmm. it. And it's not like you're losing it. It's just, you're going through that phase of, of your career. I, I liken it to kind of getting stamps on your yeah. CFO or VP of finance passport, yeah. if you will definitely hey thanks for listening we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors how much of your day now rohit is in the spreadsheets versus just dealing with people and personalities would you say
0: i think i still spend about like 60% of my time in spreadsheets 40% dealing with people it's really important for me to kind of fly really high but go really deep i feel like if i'm not in the weeds like if i don't understand something i can't really have an opinion on it and The leadership team depends on, I think, the finance team a lot on helping, you know, synthesize a lot of things at a high level, but also understand the detail. So, for example, I'll give you a crazy example, super detailed, where, you know, I put together some of the board decks and the messaging on it, the numbers on it. But there might be something like super obscure detail, like an accounting rule to change, a lease accounting, for example. Like, I still need to understand the details of the mechanism of like how that moves to the balance sheet. But I'm not going to put that on the board deck. So I feel like you have to do both ends where you might have to just, you know, for the board, you're just synthesizing like, okay, like that lease accounting, maybe I'll just say like oh, the impact to networking capital or, or cash burn, for example. But you also need to know like how that moves across your financials. So I think it's super important to be in the weeds Otherwise, I think if you don't use it, you start losing it. And I know, I don't think I ever want to be in that position.
1: We talked to Jenny Decker, the CFO of Front, and she likened it to playing eagle and playing mouse. So she said as a CFO, you have to be able to basically switch levels of what you're flying yeah. at and to be able to go into the weeds. Because even if you don't like have to explain that in a board meeting about like you're using the lease change with, with accounting rules there, I mean, you don't want to be like, caught in like a paper mache suit in the rain, like feeling like you, 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 you don't actually know what's going on. And I think there's a level of confidence knowing that, hey, I know these numbers better than anyone else because I did spend that time in the weeds.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, another thing I do is like our team does really well is we have like a, every month we close, when we do the close and forecast, we put together a risk and opportunities table where we oh, just like cool. list out everything right like what are the risks that we have in in the business what are the opportunities that we have so we know at all times where we stand and that really puts me in a really good position so when i get questions from our leadership team it's like well how do we think about that or what's your opinion on this like i can quickly say okay well i understand all the other details that we need to know or what the risks are so then we can say, okay, let's do this. Let's invest here. Let's not invest here because, you know, there's a potential risk of this happening. So we need to reserve some dollars for that. So I think it's really incumbent, uh, like, especially this, like, not the CFO role, but like the next level down, you really need to know everything that goes through your financials, at least. I'm totally
1: stealing this because the risks and opportunity slide is something that I've seen a lot, but it's more the CEO teeing it up. I think it's a great exercise too, to get people thinking bigger about impacts on the business and it's a really good muscle i think to exercise especially for the more junior finance people who Mm -hmm. need to get out of just like hey this is the number it's like no no no. but what's the impact on the overall business can you write that down in like a succinct summary for us yeah definitely so what are the metrics then that you track on a daily and monthly basis with that business model
0: yeah i mean there's there's a lot like the traditional SaaS metrics right like what i like to think about like daily like weekly, monthly, I look at it from like two different ways. Like what are the, what are tier one metrics and Mm -hmm. what are the tier two, three metrics, not from a level of importance, but more of like, you know, how deep do we want to go? So on a monthly cadence, we'll track like everything, for example, like ARR, but on a weekly or a, or a daily cadence, it's around like, you know, how many ads are we getting? What does the MQL look like? What is the conversion rate there? So we, we look at, I have a wall of metrics that we track in our planning system. So it's just, we look at everything. Did you, and I asked this
1: because we're just undergoing this as a company now, or where I work, where we serve auto mechanic shops, but we recently discovered like, hey, we shouldn't be looking at some of these metrics on a monthly basis. We should be looking at them daily, like daily ordering shops and daily number of transactions. Did you ever undergo that process or were you always kind of, you know, up on the daily metrics from the
0: start? No, I don't think so. I think I was a little bit far away from like, some of the daily metrics. A lot of our teams, you know, for example, like if you're working in marketing, like you're probably looking at that daily metrics every day. But when you're in finance, you kind of get away from it, at least at our scale, you've got to get away from the daily metrics. You're looking at things more on a weekly or or you're looking at the pacing of it on a on a weekly basis. And then definitely you're looking at all the metrics on a monthly cadence. So I don't think there was like a huge switch from my end, like being in finance, but there have been other places where I've looked at things like 90% of the metrics I was looking at was on a daily basis. Like how is it moving? Especially if it's a consumer business, you right? You're, you're going to be looking a lot more daily, but if it's a B2B, you know, there's a lot more predictability. So you might be looking at this on a weekly or a monthly basis.
1: Right, wrong or indifferent. I tend to look at businesses like on a continuum where, you know, S and B is still B2B, but it's a lot closer to B2C than like mm-hmm. enterprises. And because of that, a lot of the metrics that you do want to look at are at that micro level in terms of what's trending on a daily or weekly basis. That's at least how I yeah. wrap my head around it. Yeah. So you have a wall of metrics, but what's the North Star metric, man? Give it to me.
0: Oh, man. I think, again, like this is a question I don't like to answer. There's not just one metric. I look at everything like, okay, there's probably three categories that I look at. There's going to be your customer health, your growth metrics, and your financial metrics. And then everything I look at is like, I want to look at a metric, then I want to look at the counter metric. So if I look at ARR, I want to look at CAC. If I look at you know revenue, I'm looking at free cash flow. So we, we like to track everything. But I think like you know, as most SaaS businesses, you're, you're looking at customer health, you're looking at growth, you're looking at CAC. NDR free cash flow those are like super important things for us and more recently i think in june we announced that we're going to be on a path to like cash flow break even so that's been something that that's super important to me that you know that i focus on a lot
1: nice i like how you framed it up as the the counter metric because you can't look at it in like a vacuum and say, revenue is great, but I'm not going to check the other Mm -hmm. one. I know I'm saying, restating something simple for all the people out there, but just the way that you put it so eloquently that you always want to, you know, bump it up against whatever that countermeasure Mm -hmm. is. And so what was the metric in the early days that you'd say kept you up at night? Oh man,
0: hiring was a lot, kept me up. Um, When we went through um, COVID was a very interesting time. Yeah. Because that was still kind of early days. And I remember being in the middle of planning. Like our fiscal year is a little bit later than the calendar year. So we I was in the middle of planning in March. And we had just kind of completed majority of our planning and our hiring profile. And a week later, you know, we get this like notification of like, oh, COVID's happening. Like everything's shutting down, <laughs> business are locking down. And we we're just like, oh my God, we just went through planning. We're going to have to do this yeah. all over. Again. Throw it out. And we did it. And we, we threw it out. We, we readed the plans. We readed the hiring plan. You know, everybody kind of just froze for a minute there for a month or two. So there was a lot going on and, you know, we are, we serve small businesses specifically. And that was a very unique time where like, you didn't know like if small businesses were we going to survive or not. And luckily, you know, there was like the PPP program and a lot of small businesses were just kind of resilient through that and they survived. And, and that was a good thing, like not a good thing, but like, we didn't come out of it in the sense of like, it was, it was a catastrophic things. But a lot of those times, you know, I was thinking about, okay, what's our hiring going to look like? What's our burn going to look like? And all of those things. So really, really focused on those.
1: Sometimes I'm, I'm like that uh, guy in Ice Age who just gets distracted like squirrel. You said <laughs> you were on a, a non-standard calendar year. Can you break that down for me? I've never worked at a company that didn't have a
0: December year and finish. Yeah. Are there any benefits to doing that? I don't think it's any different. I think it just depends on like your business, like where you peak as a business in terms of like your- like Oh, like the seasonality? You get. Yeah, seasonality. For us, you know, like payroll generally, you know, people switch payroll all the time and get payroll all the time. But a lot of times you want to do it on a, they do it on a calendar year basis for tax purposes, right? So that's the peak for us is around the January, February season. So when we look at it from that perspective, We have our fiscal year end a little bit later, but I don't think it actually, like it doesn't do anything different for us from when we close. Like we could easily, I think, do it in December, but it's just something that we've seen a lot of other businesses do that are in the same space. So we kind of conform to that timing as well. All right. Corporate
1: finance guy, something that you've got to be passionate about if you're in this game. Okay. Headcount forecasting. We're going to give the people what they want here. So how does Gusto approach this exercise? You know, I imagine the majority of your costs, like most SaaS companies, 70-ish percent are probably on payroll. So how do you guys approach headcount
0: forecasting? I think this is true for a lot of companies as they get more mature. So when you first start off, you probably don't even have a headcount plan. You're going to the, the head of finance or even the CEO and saying, hey, I need to hire X, Y, and Z people. We'll see if we can afford it. Okay, go ahead and let's do it. And eventually, I think once you reach like Around 100 people, 150 people. When you're a small company, you start doing these roster-based headcount plans, where like you list out the individual roles and you have everything set up: the level, location, the the salary, et cetera. And then you kind of give that, pass that around. But what I found, and like what I think a lot of com- businesses find, is like as you get bigger and bigger, that doesn't work because there's a lot of things that you need to do. There's a lot more handholding and management in those roles. Like if you want to take that role and Let's say you want to split it into two roles with lower levels, or you're moving a role from Miami to San Francisco, and the comp is different, you need to go through a lot more approvals. So what we did more recently and a couple of years ago is we transitioned from that roster basis to a dollar based, where now instead of like you saying like, hey, CJ, you get 10 headcount for the next year, we might give you like, hey, CJ, you get $1.5 million in terms of headcount spend for the next year. Right. And then you get to basically control that budget, look at it from a real time perspective, and you can see, okay, you know, maybe I delay the headcount for a few months, or maybe I move the level or location. Now I have more dollars to play with or less dollars to play with. So it really gives a lot more flexibility to the leaders to make decisions and it also takes away a lot of complexity and i would say oversight that you don't need to do from finance where we don't need to approve every single role that goes from an l1 to like an l2 right so it really puts the puts the ownership on the leaders to to kind of do the best they want for their business
1: all right now we're cooking this is the juice that the people come to the show for so i've actually never gone through an exercise like that like i've done budget envelopes but it's more mm-hmm. around staying under like uh hey your your backstop is like don't exceed 20 headcount by this yeah. date i've never done it in terms of dollars i got so many questions here do you ever run into like weird scenarios where somebody wants to hire like just three really expensive people or i guess the opposite scenario where they want to just hire 20 non-expensive people did do you have to like coach them through those moments or is it like hey if you think that's what's best for the business go for it
0: i haven't had that situation happen before but when I say dollar base, it's not just like, "Hey, you get this set of dollars." There's actually like three sub numbers. So one is like the total dollars in in, in a fiscal year. The second, like you said, is the not to exceed number, which is like, okay, you can't exceed this threshold because you know there's also other teams in the business that need to support the company. So if you're just gonna say like, "Hey, I'm gonna take this." role and split into 20 small roles. I'm gonna hire 74 now, BDRs, now, dude. <laughs> right. <laughs> now you need a lot more people on recruiting, for example, yeah. to do that. And a lot a lot more space, maybe. So so there's a not to exceed number. And there's also a very interesting concept where like you also give a run rate number too, where you can't just say, hey, I'm gonna be within the not to exceed number, maybe, or the total number, but I'm gonna hire everybody at the end of the fiscal year. Right. Where it's not gonna add up to the total dollars for the full year, but I'll just get everybody at the end. So you don't want to do that either. So we have three different targets here. And I think most people like they don't want to do crazy things, right? They're not yeah. looking to do things where like they're taking roles and splitting them or like hiring super, super expensive roles. Like because we still have some constraints in the business. Like you still have to be equitable for the rest of the company in terms of like what comp you give out. You're still hiring in the same places that you're approved to hire. You can't just go hire anywhere you want. And you know, you're also not like taking those FTE dollars and converting them all into contractors because there's labor laws and then, you know, fairness laws as well, not fairness laws, but fairness to like what people should be doing as employees versus contractors, but also like actual laws that says like, what's a contractor doing versus what an employee is doing. So you can't do a lot of these games, but the dollar base really allows you to be a lot more flexible and have, you know, a lot more autonomy in like how you build your team.
1: You mentioned contractors. This is a this is a point of contention at a lot of companies, and I have the scars on my back from mm-hmm. having it go in the wrong direction, where people way over indexed on contractors. How do you how do you budget for contractors, and do you have to police them pretty closely, or, or are people usually good about it? Yeah, they're part of the
0: dollar base plan. We get them. Oh, they're so in that. Got it. They're in okay. there. So again, like you have some constraints in there. Like you can't just hire a contractor to do a job of a full time employee. For example, like that's just not generally allowed unless like, you know, there's a specific reason why you're hiring a contractor versus an employee, but they're part of it. So, you know, I've had this happen to me before in previous companies where like somebody has said like, oh, I don't have the budget for a headcount, but let me go and spend money on contractor and go like, you know, sidestep finance and, and the headcount plan. So when you, when you do this dollar-based methodology, you combine both of them together and those are fungible now. So if you had a consulting engagement or you had to do some contract stuff, you can do that, but it's still going to count against your dollars. So you better be careful about how you spend those. Man,
1: you're going to get the Nobel Prize in finance for this new headcount <laughs> uh, methodology. Can you just restate what the three levels are again for people listening? Because I think uh, people at home are going to write this down and, and maybe try it next year.
0: Yeah. So dollar-based planning. So the three yep. things, the three constraints are going to be your fiscal year dollars. So okay. total dollars in the fiscal year that come through kind of the payroll expense. Then The second one is not to exceed. So it's basically a headcount threshold. So perhaps let's say like whatever envelope you gave them supports 10 headcount, maybe you're not to exceed is maybe 12 or 15, where it says you have flexibility to go over, but you don't want to exceed this number. And the final concept is going to be run rate, which allows you to make sure people are not, there's not a lot of gaming going on where you just get everybody at the end of the year and you blow up your next year's budget.
1: That's what I would be worried about that everybody hires them in November, December. It's like, great, you did it for twenty-three, but twenty-four, it's gonna be a
0: complete mess. Yeah, you don't know, you know one of the, <laughs> the craziest thing is like everybody thinks that like, you know, when you when you give a headcount plan to folks, like the one of the main thing that they like overestimate is like how soon they can hire yeah. somebody in, yeah. in the door. And everybody wants their headcount in Q one. And I found that to be, you know, like that's like a pocket. That we keep in the, in the budgeting process like okay like we'll put this in you know not everything in q1 obviously but we'll spread it across but like maybe we'll have things front loaded a little bit but that's going to be my buffer because there's no that. way that the hiring is going to happen when you know when folks actually think the hiring is going to happen but you know we try to like move away from that a little bit too because it has real you know implications on like our hiring teams for example like when we need to scale that team because they're dependent on what the influx of hiring is going to come in so we try to balance that a little bit but I think that's one metric I feel like everybody kind of overestimates.
1: I've been at companies too before where like the CEO or CFO will allow all these recs to be open, but they know that there's no shot in hell (laughs) that they're going to get hired. And it's to please the other people, you know, in the exec team to say that we're allowing you to do this, but then they're just letting the recruiting team scream, which isn't a great thing for the culture long term. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any rules of thumb that you use when it comes to ratios between certain groups? I'll give you an example so for a typical saAS company, maybe it's like one b d r serves two enterprise mm-hmm. reps or something like that. like when you look at the org, are there any rules of thumb for staffing ratios?
0: Yeah, we definitely have we track a lot of ratios between like employees like different types of employees i don't I don't know if I have like a general rule for everyone like at the highest level, I'll track like a r per f d e AR per engineer and the ratios between them. But what I like to do is like, you know, we look at ratios across the board. Like we have data that goes back like eight, nine years in terms of like ratios for different roles. And, you know, I'll have ng- to p- NG product ratios. I'll have like finance to like the company ratio. And what we try to do is like really try to see if it's appropriate for the business or that let that department, see how we can challenge them to like increase their productivity the next year. So that's how we track the ratio. It's like, okay, like finance might do, for example, like one to 150, but next year for us, like the target's going to be one to 170 or one to 200. So that's how we like to kind of move things forward. And that really pushes, I think the teams to do more and better because now, you know, there's a little bit of constraint. Try to be careful with that. You know, not every team is going to have more productivity. Maybe you need to invest in some team more than another. So we try to be careful with how we do those. But that's certainly something I track.
1: It's funny. Someone the other day was actually asking me what the ratio should be for HR people to the rest of the organ. I didn't know. Like, I didn't know if it was four for every 100 or two for every 100, but it can make a difference if you mess up that ratio. Yeah. So I want to move on to talk about the qualities of of finance leaders. What do you think separates the great leaders from the good
0: ones? What sets them apart? I think the two most common things that I see is like ability to tell a story. Like storytelling is super important and influencing is also super important. But I think the most important thing probably is getting to the why, like asking why in a way that like you get to the detail, because once you know, you can move forward. And I feel like, you know, sometimes Finance can be considered as a role where, you know, you're coming at it a way where from accusatory tone, but you're really trying to understand the business. So I feel like that's a big skill to have is asking why in a way that gets people to open up. And I've definitely been in positions where like, I've asked, Hey, well, why, why not? Why are we doing this? So, like, why is this happening this way? And I've learned over time, is like, okay, you want to do it in a way where people open up, they share, and, and there's a method to doing the why.
1: There really is. And we had talked to Sanoi Torero, the CFO at Envoy, and he had said, there's really an art to saying no gracefully. And this mm-hmm. is a different kind of derivative of that. It's saying why in a way that allows people to open up, because I've actually been caught in this bind a bunch of times where I ask why, and the person kind of blows up back at me, like being defensive, mm-hmm. like, I have the ability to spend this or that. And it was probably on me to a certain degree that I didn't you know, frame it up the right way. But I've never thought about The way in which you you
0: ask why yeah and I think like the theme here is like trust right like you have to have the trust when you ask why like if you don't have the trust of the business or the person you're talking to you're going to get those type of reactions so how do you build the trust you go deep you add value you're talking to them constantly you understand their business and as you do that you build the trust and I think that gives you the license to ask why in certain situations
1: Yeah. And it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about like getting out from behind your spreadsheet and spending time Mm -hmm. with people in other departments, because if they know oh CJ like comes around and gets super excited about what we're working on. When I ask why it's less of like me being an asshole and me asking why, because I'm the curious person that they Mm -hmm. knew who was already kind of poking around. Yeah. And if you were a first time CEO, You know, some people are listening who work at seed companies or Series A and are looking for their first finance leader. What's the number one quality you would tell them to
0: kind of test for in interviews? I look at it two different ways. One is like, I think a lot of what we see now with hiring VP of finance or CFO is like strategic thinking. That's the main thing that I see across the board is like, oh, we want somebody Who's a strategic thinker who can marry the business goals with the financial goals and move the company forward? When I try to hire, and this is not you know unique to a CFO, or when I try to hire anybody in my team, I actually look for like a lot of grit along with the strategic thinking because I feel like you know if you have the grit, if you have the mental fortitude, if you can kind of go through tough things and move forward with them in a way that's productive, you are going to do well. Like you don't need the specific skill. the the job entails, you need some basic skills, obviously, but like, if you have the grit, you're going to do really well. So it's hard to measure for, but you know, I try to suss that out with like looking at previous experiences, like a lot of things that didn't go well in your past career or in your life and like how you reacted to them. And, and, you know, just, just kind of being available to do things and really taking it on. as like, okay, I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow. If you have that kind of mentality, I think it goes a long way. And I think that's also the same for like hiring a CFO is like strategic thinking definitely, but also grit. because, you know, startups hard. Like you don't know what's going to happen, you know, at an earlier stage, three months or maybe even six months from now. So you really need to be very, very flexible to be successful.
1: There's this stupid meme online and it's somebody's x-ray. But if you look like in their lungs, it's like a bulldog and it's like my test results came back. I'm 100% dog. And it's like, <laughs> I want that financial analyst. It's got yeah. that dog, that grit in them. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're gonna move into what we call our long ass lightning round. So be real with us. What's an example of something you've screwed up before in the job? And it, it doesn't have to be gusto; it can be anywhere. I think the experience that
0: comes to mind is like I once switched a role just for the title. And that was not a good move for me. And when I look back, I'm like, oh man, that was that was a terrible decision. So when I like moved on from that role, I really try to look for a role that had you know the mission the team i think is super important and i think more importantly it's like what is the impact that you're going to have so now like i never look at like titles like we don't have titles at Gusto so, which is which is great so for me it's like what are you going to do what's the impact you're going to have the title the money all those things come but like be focused on like working at like a companies and doing like really really important work and when that happens like everything will will fall in place they don't have titles at Gusto that's that's pretty neat yeah, we don't have a lot of titles. I mean, we have some titles externally for hiring yeah. and whatnot, but we don't We don't generally use titles. And it's really good because, you know, one of the things that I think is unique, even though we're a big company, is like, since we don't have titles, I don't I don't know if it's a title thing or, or I think it's a cultural thing too, but, you know, you can be like an L1, L2 and be sitting with anybody who's like an L4, L5. You don't have to go through the hierarchy of approvals yeah. or conversations like, oh, I need to ask this. Oh, maybe I need to ask my manager who needs to ask the director, who needs to ask the VP, like I think getting rid of those titles or like at least like having them like full front and center really allows like the best people in the room to do the work instead of like saying like, okay, I need to inform my manager who's then going to inform their manager. And then they're going to be the representative that's in the, in the room kind of, you know, informing and making decisions. And I really think like getting rid of titles like helps with that.
1: I agree. And I've never actually heard of a company doing this. This is, I mean, this is your second Nobel prize on, on the podcast (laughs) here. We're breaking ground. So if you, if you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you
0: know today, what would you tell them? For me, I think it's like, I wish I was a lot more disciplined when I was younger. Discipline. What are you playing too many video games or something? Yes, I did. I played a lot of like (laughs) Warcraft when I was younger in college and in high school, lots of video games, you know, just kind of goofing around and if folks know me now. I'm like very meticulous, very disciplined in what right. I do. Like, especially like we were talking earlier, is like, you know, I have two young kids and time is a huge constraint, right? Like, you only have probably like two to three hours maybe for yourself during the day. And like, discipline matters a lot for me. It's like, okay, I wake up, work out before the kids are up, come back home for more or finish work, and then like really spend time with family and then like maybe get an hour or two of leisure time. So, like, really making sure, like, I spend my time productively matters a lot. And I wish I did that when I was younger because I think – and that's what I try to teach my sons, too. Like, they're pretty young now, but my three-year-old is kind of learning a little bit. But, yeah. you know, he has a ways to go.
1: I'm still in search of that 25th hour of the day. <laughs> I wish. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep your stack, sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. So can you walk me through your finance software stack, what you're using today to run in the business?
0: Yeah, we have NetSuite as our ERP. We use Pigment for our financial planning software. We're on Navon now for travel and reimbursement. And I also use Coda, which is kind of a task manager and productivity tool as well.
1: That was the first one for the pod. You're kind of like a product person too, in that sense.
0: Oh, I love fracking you know, work and and putting things on the calendar or on the task list because you always forget when there's so many different things. But like, yeah, I have like deadlines just come at me from Coda that I didn't even know that that I don't remember. You know that I set something up three months ago. So I, I find that to be super super useful. Anything like Coda, you know, Airtable, Asana, those kind of things.
1: I might take that recommendation from you because I've been trying to do everything out a Notion, but I'm not very good at making like templates for myself. So it ends up just being like a bullet list every morning of all the things. Yeah. And then I just scratch them off. So I got to mature there. What's, what's the most recent tool you bought?
0: We just bought pigment. So we're implementing pigment and they're, you know, they're expanding across the board. I've, I've heard a lot of people kind of get on pigment. So yeah, their name has uh, come up a, a bunch. Yeah. It's a great tool. We're excited. We're kind of in the middle of it, but pretty excited to kind of launch that pretty soon.
1: Nice. All right. Last one I got for you here. I ask everybody, what's the craziest thing
0: you've seen someone try to expense before? Oh man, a lot of the things. When I was working, I think when you're working at like a B two B classic enterprise sales company, you get a lot of different things come through. But I think that one of the craziest things probably like somebody tried to expense a bike once, a, a bicycle, and I was like, what's what's going? Like, what is this bicycle? Like, why are we expensing like a bike for bicycle? commuting like, or? <laughs> well, what had happened was like, it got stolen near a company property. And somebody, uh, I guess their manager or somebody said like, oh yeah, just expense it," Like, cause it was, it was close to the company property. And when I looked at it, I was like, oh man, like I thought it was going to be like a couple hundred bucks. And like, I didn't know the bikes cost like, you know, two to $3,000. So it was, it was quite expensive.
1: that's hilarious I've had my bike stolen twice when I lived in Boston and one time I remember I had taken I used to commute all the way to Providence Rhode Island each day on the Amtrak so it was like a Mm. long day and I got back at like 10 p.m and it was like it was probably a classic Boston night in the winter it was like 35 degrees out and I went to go ride my bike home and it just wasn't there anymore and it was I was just so sad you should have just
0: expensive
1: (laughs) got a new bike Rohit this has been a pleasure thanks thanks for gracing the pod and coming on I appreciate it man Thank you, CJ, for this opportunity. I love the pod. Appreciate it. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.